0: and not understanding only. Because it's
1: easy to let this sort of thing become an, an, an exercise in intellect. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's easy to let this sort of thing just become, uh, or I should say, an academic exercise. You know, we study the word and we gain knowledge of the word. And we're, we're built up by that. And we're edified by that. And that's good. But here's, here's the trick of the devil that it becomes only knowledge in our heads and not something that impacts the way we actually live our daily lives. That's what this is for. We want to add to our knowledge, yes, but that knowledge must add to the way that we live or else it's just knowledge. First Peter chapter 3, I believe we had left off in the fourth paragraph, which begins in verse 10, where he said, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, which means avoid it, habitually avoid it. I actually looked up that word just to make sure that I had the right understanding. It speaks of habitual avoidance of something. It's just what you do out of reaction. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So let's pick it up from the next paragraph in verse 13 of 1 Peter, where he says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you or accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now stop right there. What's he talking about? Well, he's already spoken of this somewhat earlier in this letter. He's bringing it back up again. If we suffer for doing right, it is better than if we suffer for doing wrong. And so this is very much a teaching in practical Christianity. Okay. We can believe whatever, but it's what we live that really shows what our priorities are, and what our understanding of the word of God is. And so if someone persecutes you for doing right, again, not doing wrong, but if someone persecutes you for doing right, how do we react? How do we react? Now people get accused, rightly and wrongly, all the time out in the world. You know, it's, And as, the, as we've re- referenced it in our Bible studies uh, already, we'll reference it again. The old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, When you try to do the right thing, and then it blows up in your face, and then you get accused of doing things that you did not do. Or you get accused of doing things with a bad motive or something like that. How do we react? Well, the first thing that needs to happen in every one of us, if and when we face these scenarios, and sometimes we do, is we need to not react. We need to remember this word, and we need to not retaliate. Because once we erupt in anger and in indignation, we have played right into the devil's hands. We have just rendered evil for evil, and we're admonished over and over again not to do that sort of thing. He says, but and if, so verse 14, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, happy are ye. No, why? Why? How is that even that we possibly be happy in the case of suffering for doing right? Well, because Jesus suffered for doing right. And Peter brings up Jesus as our example again and again in these letters. He brings up Christ as our example again and again for suffering wrongly for doing that which was right. Look at all that Jesus did. He healed people. He restored sight to the blind. He restored other faculties to people that were physically diseased or maimed or injured, restored even dead people to life again and again. He worked these wonderful miracles in people's lives and not just the physical things, not just the physical things of the body. You're blind. Here's your sight. You're dead. Here to have some life again or however it was. It wasn't just these things. He spoke for three years. He spoke and taught in, in depth and in authority, truth. That his own people, the Jews, who were supposed to be the the gatekeepers of the truth, in a manner of speaking, he taught them truth at a depth that they had never possessed before. He gave them a depth of understanding they'd never had before. He did nothing but good for everyone that had an encounter with him. I think the only people that su- the only the only thing that suffered ill of him was that fig tree that he cursed. That was it. Every person that ever came to Jesus got everything or got exactly what they needed. didn't say wanted, but it say needed. And so even in doing that, even in healing people, even in teaching people, even in opening the eyes of their understanding and, and blessing them with deliverance of different kinds and doing all of the good that he had done for people, he was still falsely accused. He was accused of being a blasphemer. He was accused of being a lawbreaker, of despising the law of Moses when all he was doing was fulfilling it. And so he, how did he react? Well, he didn't rail them for railing against him. He didn't return evil for evil. And even when they stripped him and they beat him and they nailed him to a cross and he could have called down 10 legions of angels. He didn't. He took it. Now, it's easy to teach that. It's not so easy to live. Because when you get accosted by someone, or you get accused falsely or you get you get treated badly or persecuted, you end up suffering for righteousness' sake, the first thing that happens is the flesh tries to rise up. You know, until such time as you've got that thing so crucified that you have forgotten how to get angry. And praise God for people that have reached that stage. Really, we all need to reach that stage. But until that happens you have to make an eff- an extra effort to keep the old man, the old you, dead and in his tomb. And let the new you that is in Christ react rightly to that, react with patience, react with prayer towards that person. And it is something, it is a discipline, it is a practice, but there it is for us. So he says here, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now let's stop right there. So he doesn't just tell us, I don't want to say it's a case of him not telling us what not to do. All of this is a case of, of him telling us what we ought to do and how we ought to react. If you suffer for righteousness sake, you have joined a very large club. You have joined a very special fellowship. Okay? You are participating in and you are becoming acquainted with Jesus' sorrows and jesus's sufferings okay that puts you in a a special category it really does and it's a good thing i'm not saying that to try to incite or inflame pride in any of us that's not the motive behind it but you can take some comfort in that okay wait a second this happened to my lord and so if it happens to me then i'm simply becoming acquainted with my lord's own sufferings and so that actually brings you into a little bit maybe perhaps a a closer relationship with jesus because now you understand a little bit of what he went through. You understand more personally a little bit of what he went through. Because it's so easy to just get comfortable. Because we don't have a lot of persecution for being a Christian in the U.S. There's some, and there's more today than there was 20 or 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But don't really have it like they have it in Nigeria, where they're killing pastors over there. They don't really have it like what they have it in uh in Egypt, where they still persecute and sometimes kill Christians over there, and in other places throughout the Middle East, and in China. Now they're not even letting them have Christian funerals. So what's a Christian funeral? Well, there really isn't one because Jesus just rose people from the dead is what he did. But you know, it's not especially tragic, it's just a nuisance that they can't, you know, bury people as they would over there, bury Christians as they would over there. But it's just give us kind of an example of what's going on and help us to continue to appreciate what we have here. He says in verse 15, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give an answer when you're suffering for righteousness sake. That is an open door for you to demonstrate the transformative power of Jesus in your own life. It's an open door to that because they see how you react when they accuse you of wrongdoing and you have not done wrong or when you have done right, but They want to uh, twist and turn that around to make it seem like you've done something horrible. They're going to look at how you've reacted. So, well, let's just grab some low-hanging fruit on that example. What's a good example of that? Okay, well, let's look at this whole LGBT crisis that we're having in our country. Okay? When you open your mouth and speak against it, not in hatred, but then you get labeled of a, a, a being, you get accused of being a homophobe and being filled with hate and all that sort of thing. Well, how do you react to it? If we rise up in anger and start to, and have the same spirit as a couple of the disciples did when they asked Jesus if they should uh, call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and burn up all these horrible sodomites, and we, we take that sort of a tone, then we've really kind of swung and missed. We've really missed the mark there. When if we adapt an attitude of it and an action of simply standing our ground not backing down and compromising the truth of the word. Okay, like the Church of England has recently got themselves in the news because they issued a statement last week that said sex is only for heterosexual married couples. Now that's a rock-solid biblical truth. This actually hit the news and you'd think that's like them issuing a statement that water is wet and grass is green. I mean it's, it's that clear. But they put that out there and of course the moment you say something like that in a large-scale venue, you know here comes the Rainbow Mafia and they're going to try to cut you to the ground. That's what they're going to want to do. And as a result of the, uh, let's just say as a result of the misled reacting against that, the Church of England found themselves backing up and apologizing. That's not the right way to do it. You can stand for the truth. You can stand your ground. Please stand your ground. As far as the truth of the word is concerned, and what's pleasing to God, and what's displeasing to God, but we can do it without hatred, and we can do it in knowledge, ready to give an answer. So when you're being persecuted, and they see you handling things right, they see you not losing your cool, they see you not... uh, breathing out threatenings and slaughter of your own, saying, oh, well, you're going to burn in hell. It's like, okay, well, that just helped the situation. You know? Thank you for de-escalating that, which is to say putting out the fire with gasoline. But when they see you react calmly and coolly and with love, that's what makes the difference there. Because even the calmness and coolness can be exercised with contempt. You know what I mean? And with pride, even. And there are groups that pride themselves on their ability to do that sort of thing. But that's really not what God's looking for either. When you can react calmly and coolly with love. And have a ready answer. He says here, let's take it from the back half of verse 15. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with Meekness, so we're not doing it with pride and with fear so we're not doing it with pride you know you can have some confidence but have meekness on the matter have love on the matter for the people that you're talking to understanding that you are speaking to other misguided human beings in need of the same Savior that you were once in need of and in a manner of speaking we all still need on a regular basis give me Jesus please as much of him as I need as much of him as I want and more and So if, we, if we, react, we react rightly, you can turn the hearts of people in the direction of the kingdom. Now, it takes God to do that. Yes, I understand. It takes God to get them saved. I understand. But we can at least show them the right way, can't we? We can at least point them in the right direction. And we do that, one, by not succumbing to the same dark side forces that they are, you know, not reacting in anger and hatred and wrath. And by having a ready answer. And in order to have a ready answer, you've got to know some word. Amen? You've got to know some word. you got to know enough about the gospel to point people to Jesus. And take away, you take the bullets out of their guns, so to speak. You take the bullets out of their gun when you simply say to them words of the effect of, well, Jesus saves everybody who wants to be saved. Jesus can save anything. His, sins, his blood can wash away anybody's sins. It can change us. It can change you from the inside out. You know, you, you make sure that they understand. You try to make sure that they understand that you're you're not speaking from a position of uh, self righteousness or moral supremacy, or at least not having that kind of an attitude. You are, in fact, speaking from a position of moral superiority, but not because of any inherent goodness in any of us. It's because of the inherent goodness in Jesus and what he has brought into our lives by changing us and making us new creatures. Verse 16. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. React the right way. Handle it right. Handle it prayerfully. Commit the situation to God. And oftentimes you will see those that, you know, are not of a completely reprobate mind, those that have falsely accused you will find themselves backpedaling, being ashamed of their own actions, being ashamed of their own words and their own false accusations against you. Because here's the thing about the unrighteous, and, And we were in the same category once before we came to Christ. Okay. We knew when we had done somebody wrong. And though we may have put on a good show in front of other people that we were like, when we got home to the quiet of our own houses and the quiet of our own bedrooms as we lay in bed at night waiting to go to sleep, that's when a person's a person's conscience really starts talking to him. a lot of times. You did wrong. You did that fellow wrong. You accused him of something you know they did not do or you twisted it and turned it around and made it sound like they acted with an evil motive and an evil intent, when in fact they had not. And so all of those things can, by the mercy of God and by the Spirit of God, those things can work to turn a heart, a wayward heart, towards Jesus. Look back at the early church. You don't want to get lost in, in, in a historical rambling here, but you look back at the early church and the persecutions that early Christians especially endured at the hands of their accusers. Because we were accused of all kinds of things in the earliest days. We were accused of being atheists because we didn't have idols that we bowed down and prayed to. Things like that. You look at some of the persecutions that they endured, you understand why it is said that the blood of martyrs is seed. They persecute us. They are actually causing the Word and the church to spread and grow. Because it reveals their own pathology, their own pathological wickedness to themselves. And causes them, in many cases, to seek the truth and change their tune. Let's move on. Verse 17. For it is better, if the will of God, if, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now I'll stop right there because he takes a little bit different turn in the next verse and I want to handle that next part very carefully. Verses 17 and 18 just reinforces the previous verses concerning the right way that we ought to react. He's bringing up our Lord as our example again. And our Lord is our example in all things. And so that's who we should look to in our mind's eye, especially when we're needing strength and inspiration to handle the situation the right way. For it is better... If the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing, then for evil-doing. Now, that's one of those no-brainer statements, but it's important to reinforce that in our understanding. Certainly, it does the Lord no good at all, and it does not advance the kingdom in any way if we suffer for evil-doing, does it? Because we've done evil. We haven't helped the kingdom. We sabotaged a little bit and we've con- contributed again to the brokenness of the world when we were supposed to be contributing to its correction or at least its preservation as being the salt of the earth. So he says it's better if we suffer, that we suffer for well doing than for evil doing. Take that as a reminder to not be evil doers, but to be doers of good things because of what Jesus has done in us. For Christ also hath suffered, once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Well, there it is, isn't it? There's the template. He was falsely accused, he was wrongly treated, and ultimately crucified, but he endured all of that to bring us to God. And so if we suffer, if we suffer wrongly for doing right, if we suffer wrongly, then we have an opportunity to accomplish the same goal, or at least to contribute to that same goal. People see how you react, and it'll speak to them louder than a hundred sermons and messages and Bible studies. Someone standing up and, and preaching or teaching out of the Word of God. Because, again, that kind of speech is easy. When they see how you react, that's what really reveals your true nature to people and they see if your Christianity is a reality to you or if it's just words on the wind. For Christ also hath suffered once, once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being quickened by the Spirit, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a, was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also doth doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, if you caught all of that, raise your hand. What is it talking about? Preaching to spirits in prison? What, what, what is that all about? Well, what is that all about? Well, it's a little bit of a glimpse into some of the things that happened to our Lord immediately after his death. So his death on the cross was what paid for our sins. Okay, Because that death sentence was actually ours. For our transgressions against God, our high crimes against heaven, however you want to phrase that. Let's read this again. Verse 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein that, that is few, few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. What's this talking about? Jesus went to preach to the souls that were in prison to what end? Well, it wasn't preaching to the souls that were in prison with any intention of saving them. So this go this right here this rabbit hole goes pretty deep. And I don't want to get lost too much in it, but there was something that he was accomplishing there. Well, what, what, what's what's the souls in prison? What's prison in souls? Well, what's hell but a prison? What is hell but a prison for the lost? And it's not going to be their ultimate abode. Their ultimate abode, the Bible speaks of a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Hell itself will give up the dead. And and, and that's going to be a fire that's never quenched. And there's there's not going to be any deliverance from that prison. And uh, that's a ghastly thing to really think on and meditate about. But it's the truth, and we cannot avoid it. Neither should we hope to, neither should we try. It's there. But he mentions them, and so we have to talk about it here which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Well, what do we know about the days of Noah? Things were in a terrible state in the days of Noah. The wickedness that was in the earth, the violence and the evil that pervaded the human race during the days of Noah were, it was, you could say, almost beyond measure. There was no end to the stuff. And the thoughts of man's heart, the Bible says, was only evil continually. Well, they all perished in that flood, except for Noah and his immediate family, They all perished in that flood. Well, what happened then? The same thing that happens to anyone that's on the wrong side of things where God is concerned at the time of their death. They descended into hell where they abide even to this day. But you just mentioned that Jesus went and preached to them. Well, that's what it says here. We take the Bible at face value well why would he preach to them if there was no hope for salvation sometimes people just need to have an understanding of why they are in the state that they are in while well, the ark was preparing but he mentions this for a reason because it's and it sounds like almost like he's rambling he's not rambling he is actually getting the message across but it sounds like he is he's rambling first he's talking about Christ being our example now he's talking about Christ going and preaching to the souls in prison now he's talking about baptism and he's using the flood of Noah as a metaphor for that baptism. But let's go through it. Verse 21: like the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. He's likening it to the flood of Noah baptizing the whole planet. But then he clarifies. Like figure whereunto, even baptism doth now also save us. But then he clarifies in these parentheses, he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Now, we can't bring this up without talking a little bit about baptism. Now, we believe in baptism because our Lord commanded people to be baptized, but It gets easy to mix up baptism with salvation in our minds if we're not careful. Now, is baptism essential for salvation? No. Jesus is essential for salvation. If baptism were essential for salvation, then our salvation would be by works. I'm saved because I got baptized. That's a swing and a miss. We've missed the target. We've missed the mark if that's what we believe. Okay? But baptism being commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ, we as obedient disciples of our Lord, children of our God, we as obedient Christians would then seek to be baptized in obedience. As, as Peter says, it's the answer of a good conscience towards God. Man, if it was baptism that saved people, all we'd do is just set up a gigantic dunk tank and toss people in it all day long. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Sploosh! Next! In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Sploosh! You know, yeah, man, we're saving the whole city. It's like, that'd be awesome. But that's not what it is. Because getting dumped in water does not, it does not signify, it does not always signify a change of heart. So he specifies that here. He clarifies here in, in, these, in this parenthetical statement. It's the answer of a good conscience towards God. So what is it that saves? Faith, grace, the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the acceptance of his sacrifice as the payment for our sins, all of that bound up together. It's Jesus that saves. But we are baptized out of obedience. So now that we're saved, now we baptize. But it's not the water that saves. The act of baptism represents the answer of a good conscience towards God. And then he says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's actually look at that whole statement. The like figure whereunto, even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him.
0: Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible Studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are Red Letter Studies on the Life and Teachings of Our Lord Jesus Christ, Historical Studies on the Old Testament, Topical Studies on Biblical Doctrines, and Practical Studies on Christian Life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash dash giving